Good morning and Christian greetings to, to each of you. Going to be continuing in 1 Corinthians uh, this morning as we get toward the end of this book. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest chapter of 1 Corinthians, but it is also the most exhaustive passage of Scripture dealing with the uh, resurrection and the implications and the central reality of that, that component or even the, the, of the gospel. <clears throat> Back on Easter Sunday, I had preached from the first part of this chapter, and I'm returning to uh, touch on the, or to cover the last part of this chapter. But on Easter Sunday, I emphasized, and I want us to remember, looking at verses 3 and 4 of this chapter, Paul makes it very clear that the essence of the gospel is found in three simple phrases there in verses 3 and 4. Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to the scripture. Paul says that that's the essence of the gospel and so much, so often we add other things to it, but unless we grasp, unless we um, identify with and hold to this fact of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're missing something. And it's, it's incredibly important. And that's you know, the question that I have and the challenge, even in an ongoing way, has that reality, has that central reality of the gospel captured our hearts and our imaginations? Is it something that we think about, that we're awed over, and uh, that, we, that makes a difference in the way that we live our lives? Our new life in Christ literally hinges on those three realities. The promise, the hope, and the possibility of eternal life only resides in us because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul begins chapter 15 by establishing the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it happened, that it's factual. And then he expands that by establishing and explaining that it's because of Jesus' resurrection that we can be assured of the resurrection of the dead much more broadly. And then he wraps up the chapter expounding on what the resurrection body will be like, um, kind of. And then, but, but I again want to just focus that without that central reality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, there is no resurrection of the dead. There is no resurrection body. There is no second coming of King Jesus. There's no victory over death and Satan. And ultimately, there's no eternal life for any of us apart from the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've entitled this morning's message um, Resurrection Triumph, and it's from verses 35 through the end of the chapter that we will be looking at this morning. 
like for you to um, open your Bibles and let's stand together as we read this, um, this passage of Scripture, this text. <clears throat> and I will just tell you that there's some imagery and some words in here that we can kind of almost gloss over and now what does that mean or like and even the way the sequence of the words and so forth but let's let's just pay attention and let's see what the lord has for us from this passage of scripture verse 35 we're kind of cutting in in the middle here when he's talking about the resurrection of the dead and then paul continues here in verse 35 but someone will ask how are the dead raised with what kind of body do they come you foolish person what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resur resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual I'm sorry, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality." When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You may be seated. <clears throat> there is no way I can, in a comprehensive way, uh, explain this 
passage of scripture that I just read to you here this morning that we read together. However, I would like to pick up some of the large concepts that I see in here. Before we dig into the text, I'm going to just throw out, I want you to use your imagination for a moment. Imagine that you're at some point in the future, maybe a hundred years from now, and you are invited to the Washington Auto Show to preview some of the latest advances in technology when it comes to cars. And you're awed by one concept vehicle in particular. To call it a car would be an understatement, yet what else would you call it? Maybe a transport vehicle. Its engine runs on a plentiful fuel that has not yet been discovered or invented. The engine is guaranteed to never wear out. It will run an infinite number of miles. It would put Walter in the unemployment line. Um, Beyond that, the entire car is designed to maintain itself. The frame, the body, the suspension, there's no repairs ever needed. And while it has wheels and can be driven, it also has an option to teleport anywhere instantly. You know, that's the stuff of science fiction right there. I mean, I, you know, I don't believe that that is possible, and yet I think that using our imagination is necessary when it comes to looking at this passage of Scripture and what the, resurrect, the realities of the resurrection really are. <clears throat> we sing the song, I'll Have a New Body. Have you ever stopped to ponder what that means or even why it matters? Whether we have given it much thought or not, I believe that we all have some assumptions of what that might be like. <clears throat> Paul tackles this question that uh, was presented to him, <clears throat> whether it was outright asked or whether he just um, addresses it, we're not told, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of the Corinthian believers were asking these questions. <clears throat> Our finite minds have a difficult time comprehending and explaining what this is all about. What is a resurrection body, especially when our <clears throat> realities are rooted in three-dimensional time and space? I could use a drink of water, <clears throat> please. <clears throat> How are the dead raised? What kind of a body do they come with? Paul responds, you know, what a foolish question. I mean, he says, you foolish person. Um, one translation I was reading just had the word stupid with an exclamation point. I mean, that's in essence what Paul was saying. What, a, what type of a question is that? <clears throat> but Paul is now setting out and he wants to describe a bit what our resurrection bodies will be like in comparison to things that we can reference here in our earthly state that we're in. After asking the question here in the first verse, or verse 35, he um, uses a common aspect or something that we're familiar with in life as an object lesson. <clears throat> and he uses the picture of seeds. 
until it dies, until a seed dies, it can't grow. <clears throat> Take a look at agriculture. Um, there's a field out here that there's just stuff coming up through the ground now. Uh, the garden would also look at that, <clears throat> which would demonstrate that. But literally, until you put a grain of wheat, and he uses the example of wheat, in the soil, it remains simply what it is, a grain of wheat. And a grain of wheat is not useless. It is useful in making bread and you name it. But it only remains that grain of wheat. <clears throat> and a grain of wheat, you know, is not really something that is that remarkable to look at. Um, it's pretty nondescript. It's not something you really notice. Maybe you could even describe it a bit ugly. I don't know. It's an, I wouldn't call it. It's not something that you really just take notice of. <clears throat> but there's other examples, too, I mean, for, for a kernel of corn. You know, a kernel of corn is wrinkled and, and so forth, and yet that is what it is. It's a kernel of corn. Thank you. Yes. Or sunflower seed. Or maybe even an apple seed. Or a tulip bulb. Or an iris bulb. Now, when it isn't until the seed or the bulb is buried in the ground and that it dies that life within it truly bursts forth becoming something drastically different than what we see here. Now, I don't know of any of us. I mean, we enjoy corn. We enjoy bread. We enjoy munching on sunflower seeds, maybe. Um, I don't know of any of us that enjoy chewing on apple seeds or, or bulbs of any kind. Um, but, but if it wasn't for the potential that is there, these things would be useless. I mean, they're, they're ugly, they're useless, they're really just of little value. But when that life bursts forth after it's been buried in the ground and dies, it turns into something drastically different, yet far greater than what was actually buried. But first, before that can happen, it has to totally surrender itself and what it is and give that up and die. A grain of wheat becomes a stalk of wheat with multiple additional grains and kernels. A kernel of wheat, uh, corn, becomes a stalk of corn with multiple ears with many, uh, with many kernels of, of corn on that. A sunflower becomes a brilliant, I mean, it's a, it's a towering plant with many leaves and then a bright flower with hundreds of seeds. And an amazing thing about the sunflower, it literally turns to follow the sun. As the sun rises and sets, it will follow the sun. 
Apple seeds become apple trees and eventually produces delicious and sweet fruit for everyone to enjoy. Tulip bulbs by themselves are just simply a little bit odd, uh, you would say, but if, if we didn't know and appreciate their bright flowers early in the spring, I think that we could easily disregard them and even discard them. We wouldn't even pay attention to them. They just would have little value for us. Iris bulbs in a very similar way. Um, not re nothing remarkable about a bulb, but the intricate flower and the colors reveal something that is not close to recognizable just from the bulb itself. The potential for something is far more glorious what is within the seed and the bulb, but it's not until it's died and is buried, it will never be realized. God gives that, the seed or the bulb, the body or shell that he chooses. That's in verse 38. He chooses what kind of a shell or a body that we, we live in. And then he makes the point that not all plants look the same and produce very different kinds of fruit, whether a flower, a grain, a fruit, or something else. And in similar ways, bulbs all are very different from each other. Uh, seeds and bulbs are all very different from each other. And um, I was, so we have all of these variations. Uh, I'm sorry, I'll go back here. <clears throat> of these seeds and, the, and what life, what form of life is in them. And then he goes on in verse 39 to make the contrast that even as seeds and bulbs are very different from each other, humans are very different from animals, which are very different from birds, which are very different than, than fish. Nowhere in here is he suggesting that these animals are resurrected, but he's just simply contrasting that God created things differently for different purposes. And he continues by pointing out differences between the sun and the moon and stars and the planets. They're all created different from each other as well as, uh, but they're created for a specific reason. Um, the sun, moon, and stars, or sun and stars are sources of light. The moon simply reflects light. Planet Earth is where we live and we need the sun in order to exist. And he's using creation to help us understand this, that God created all of this exactly the way that he wanted for specific reasons. So then in verse 42, after referring to multiple aspects of God's diverse creation, Paul states, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And then he draws a series of contrasts between what is sown and what is raised. Is sown, what is sown is perishable. And I, the Greek word for this means, it could be translated corruption. But I, the words that I liked in the definition, and perishable would also communicate this, is that it's to rot, to decay. It, it's going to disintegrate. It's, it, it will fall apart. It won't last. And I'm going to skip down. And so we're also sown to dishonor. 
And that means has to do with respect or disrespect, disregard, basically being uh, pushed aside. It's as not important, um, not of value, sown in weakness. This has to do with sickness, disease, and feebleness. Um, we're just weak. We, are, we get weaker. We get sick. We get diseases. We're feeble with time. And then he uses the term natural body, and so we all are familiar with what our natural body is. So we're sown in these different ways, or buried might be another way of saying it, but then we're raised imperishable. Imperishable, just the opposite of rotting and decaying, is immortality. It means living forever. We're raised not with disrespect or disregard or dishonor, but rather with glory, splendor, brightness. We don't have weakness. We're not, we're sown in weakness, but we're raised in power, might, strength, capability. The word here would have, the word power is the word from which we derive dynamite, the Greek word that, from which dynamite is derived. And then we're raised spiritually, spiritual body, contrasting the natural body. However, body, using spiritual body is a very poor translation. When you look at the Greek words, for the natural body, it has a word for natural and a word for body. That's what it means. For the spiritual body, there's only one word, and it only means spiritual. So there's a natural body as in contrast to just simply the spiritual. It's not physical. It's not material. It's, there's an aspect of this that is the very source of life or the fuel that will be there that is different. The resurrection of the dead will be far more superior to our natural body. It's, it's beyond our finite comprehension. It's more drastically different than a seed is from a plant. It will be as much of a reality as our current reality with our natural and sinful and finite bodies. I mean, it will become real to us, but we just simply can't comprehend it. But we have to be sown. We have to be buried. We have to die in order for the possibility to be raised and to be resurrected. As I was thinking through this and just thinking like, Paul doesn't really describe much about the body, the resurrected body here, but he does somewhat in that it's immortal, it's glorious, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's spiritual in nature, it's not physical as we think about it, and, uh, and it's powerful. He does describe that. But I also wanted to know, like, or think about how maybe... Jesus' post-resurrection appearances give us a clue as to what the resurrected, our resurrected bodies will be like. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the first person to have raised from the dead with a resurrected body. And so I'm going to just look at, we're going to look together at a number of scriptures of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances 
and the descriptions that we have from that to draw some, uh, I, I don't want to say conclusions, but at least some inferences of what this might be like. Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain on which Jesus had directed him. And when he saw them, I'm sorry, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So, it's pretty clear from here. Now, this may have been toward the end of his uh, time here. But they knew who he was, and some believed and some didn't, but when they saw him, they worshipped him. And so he was recognizable, at least. Mark 16. And when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. So here, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. She obviously knew who he was. She recognized him. She went and told the others about it. They didn't want to believe her, perhaps because she was a woman, perhaps because of her reputation. But they did not want to believe her. But he appeared to her. She knew who he was. But then just the next verse is a very interesting statement. After these things, he, Jesus, appeared in another form to two of them. As they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Now, I don't know what that meant, but Jesus appeared in a different form. Uh, than previously, apparently. So maybe he has the ability, had the ability to appear differently to different people depending on the situation. I don't know. Verse 14, the next verse. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had arisen. So, here he appeared to them as well, and, uh, but, you know, some had not believed because, even though they had been told that he had been risen. Luke 24, jumping to the Gospel of Luke. And this is the uh, men on the road to Emmaus. I'm reading a couple verses at the beginning and the end of this account. That very day... Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So my, what I have to wonder about here, based on the, some of the previous verses, that there was another form, was it that Jesus kept their eyes from seeing, recognizing him, or was it that his appearance changed um, later on when it says in verse 30, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. 
And then he goes on, he vanished from their sight. So here, Jesus' appearance either changed or he else he made so that they didn't recognize him until he was ready, and then he just simply vanished. There's not physical limitations to Jesus' body. A little bit later in this chapter, verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that I am that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he said, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat here? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So they thought he was a spirit. I don't know what they saw. He said a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, so apparently he must have had flesh and bones of some kind. And he did eat. So it's not like he wasn't, I don't think it's necessary for him to eat, but he did eat. And then going to John 20. And this was when... Um, Mary was at the garden there at the tomb, and the two angels said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Have you taken away my Lord? And I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling or touch me, cling to or touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So here again, Jesus appeared. Mary was very familiar with Jesus, but she turned around and saw him standing there and did not recognize him and actually supposed that he was the gardener. And yet there was something about it too that she didn't that Jesus did not want him want her to touch him or to cling to him uh, for some reason because he hadn't yet ascended. Going on in chapter 20. And when he had said this, he showed the disciples his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Lord has sent me, even so I am sending you. So they were glad. They recognized when they saw him. And then in verses 26 and 27, eight days later the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
So Jesus appeared in a locked room. They recognized him. And apparently his body, if you will, I'm not sure a body is the right word, but what he was had scars or marks for his hands and his side, and it was enough to prove to Thomas that he was who he said he was. Um, and then this one, I don't know whether they were out fishing in John 21, and as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Now, I will be quick to say on this one, we don't know whether the distance was such that they couldn't identify him or whether they simply did not recognize him. Um, that I don't know. What I find intriguing here is that thinking about these accounts of Jesus appearing to disciples after the resurrection, some recognized him, some didn't. Um, he appeared and disappeared. He vanished. Um, he ate. But there was something about this that was different. And what strikes me is that kind of like a tulip or a iris or an apple tree is very different from the seed. I wonder how much of that was going on here in Jesus' appearance to his disciples during this, those 40 days until his, uh, until his ascension. <clears throat> Paul goes on, he, says, he compares Adam, the first Adam, from the Garden of Eden with Jesus, the second Adam. The living, so Adam was a living being, Jesus was a life-giving spirit. Adam was a man of dust, and when you're buried, your body returns to dust, for Jesus was a man of heaven. We were all born in the image of the first Adam, but can be perfected in the image of Jesus Christ with our resurrected. And I continue to use the word body, even though I don't feel like that's a, our spiritual, our, our resurrected spiritual being. Our vocabulary and our comprehension inhibits our ability to, be, to really grasp that full reality of the resurrection of the dead. We can know with confidence that it's, it, will, it will exceed our current limitations. Perhaps there will be no limits. It's not going to be limited to physical. It's gonna, there's a spiritual piece of this. It's a beauty that we haven't even begun to comprehend and is not yet revealed. And the fruit is unimaginable from the seed of our earthly bodies. In verse 50, he continues with the final victory. Our current bodies, he says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Our flesh and blood has severe limitations and literally could not survive in God's eternal kingdom. The rotting, decaying, physical nature of our present human bodies are incapable of being immortal in their present state. When Christ comes again at the final resurrection, there will still be a human population living on planet Earth. And 
As such, he goes on to say that not every believer will have died and will have been sown or buried in the grave awaiting the transforming power of the resurrection. Not everyone will sleep, but our human bodies will still need to be changed, drastically transformed into those new eternal resurrection beings in the blink of an eye at that moment when those who have died are being resurrected. So there's going to have to be a transformation of everyone that's living at the time that the those that have died are being resurrected. At that moment, death is crushed forever. It is defeated. There is total victory over death for all eternity. The sting will be gone. The pain, the grief, the loneliness, the loss, it's going to all be eradicated. It will disappear because death only exists in this world because of sin. With the resurrection of the dead and our unimaginable spiritual bodies or beings, that instant transformation of all those believers that are still living, death will cease to be a threat or even a reality. And that victory over death is possible only because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. First Corinthians 15:58. He wraps this up with a, a challenge, a promise and a hope. There's this enduring hope. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In light of these incredible promises and realities and the triumph of resurrection over death, the resurrection of Jesus, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, the ultimate victory over death itself, Paul challenges the Corinthian believers, don't give up. Don't compromise. Don't rationalize. Don't be deceived by the father of lies. Rather, be steadfast, unwavering. Be steadfast to truth. Be steadfast to Jesus Christ. Be steadfast to Scripture. As Walter reminded us this morning, uh, fear God above all else. We're to be steadfast and unwavering to the gospel message that he gave here in verses 3 and 4, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. He also uses the term, he says, be steadfast, unmovable. It sounds almost redundant, and they're very similar. Unmovable would have the idea of that solid rock that Wayne referenced who God is, that it's firm, it's unshaken, it's steady. We're to be unmovable in the face of lies against deception, against Satan. With, we're to be unmovable and unshaken with our brothers and sisters, standing together, united, 
shoulder to shoulder, linking arms, and, and being that defense together. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's not just doing enough to get by. It's not doing something for recognition or personal benefit gain or gain. It's doing what needs to be done because of our love for our resurrected Savior. He gave up everything to save us. Why am I reluctant to give up more? It's looking for and finding ways to serve others and to give others a priority. It's modeling unconditional love even to those that may be difficult to love and may not even deserve it. But in the end, one day God will acknowledge and reward each one of us for those things that no one else has noticed. Um, Nothing we do for God goes unnoticed, even if no one on earth is aware of that. Our work for God is never in vain. In conclusion, I just want to kind of reemphasize that what we understand and believe about the resurrection is so key to all of Christianity. The essence of the gospel is that Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus overcame death and rose again, there will be a resurrection of the dead. Because Jesus overcame death and rose again, our resurrected bodies will far exceed our imaginations. Our current bodies, our current reality of what we see is no more than a mere seed or a bulb of what is to come, of what God will, wants to ter- make us into. Until we're raised from the dead or transformed into our resurrected bodies, the challenge is to remain steadfast to truth, to be unmovable against Satan, to keep serving Jesus by serving others. It's the only life that's worth living. <clears throat> I'd like for us to close the service this morning by uh, standing together, and Darren is going to lead us in uh, number 24 in our, into his presence, and this includes a reading. And so, um, Darren, if you would want to come up and 